Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Here we are, episode 300. This is an auspicious day to record this special episode to mark this milestone. Early this morning, I took a six-mile walk around town with a friend who, after we parted ways, would go to his grandfather's memorial service. That time waffled between philosophizing about the meaning of life and pedestrian distractions from the inevitability of his pain. We've suffered our own surprising losses here with the passing of our regularly memorialized founding host, Larry Santaro. Our sister podcasts, Far-Fetched Fables, enjoy the romanticized worlds that never existed, and Starship Sofa wonders in the futures that may or may not ever happen. But Tales of the Terrify? Horror? We fall headlong into the inescapable sadness that for each and every one of us, this will end. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. The District of Wonders has listeners in every corner of the planet. I hope that Tales to Terrify and all of the players on our stage have helped make a mockery of that grim specter that will come for you and me. I hope in some way that we've helped bring people closer, because without each other, none of this really makes any sense. Tonight, we've come together to hear a story, and it's a special one. Our editor, Scott Silk, led the search for a special story to do something a bit different. He turned up a story that has two narrative voices, so we found two narrators. I'll tell you about the author, then a bit more about the story. D. Morgan Balmer lives with his wife and daughters in Maple Valley, Washington. His work has been featured in the Tales to Terrify, the Pseudopod, Three-Lobed Burning Eye magazine, and various anthologies. He can be found online at strangelyquiet.wordpress.com or on Facebook as D. Morgan Balmer. Mr. Balmer works in cybersecurity, which is my desired career field, and it's its own never-ending horror story that is way worse than you know. I'm meaning a horror author and cybersecurity pair together like dark chocolate and red wine. As I said, Mr. Balmer's story is best told by two voices, and Scott Silk found them. You'll hear about both of them after the story, as is our custom, but I wanted to make sure to give extra credit to our own Drew Sabasini, who handled the mixing of the recordings. Thank you, Drew. And now, listen with me to D. Morgan Balmer's Dalton's Guide to Eating One's Enemies. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Inspector J. Slyfield, Phoenix Division, Special Investigations, 2873 Jackson Avenue South, Washington, D.C. To Superintendent B. McCrossan, Police Scotland, 14 St. Leonard Street, plus 44, 1786-289-070. Superintendent McCrossan. Three months ago, four young men decided to scale the old Duluth ore docks just outside of Marquette, Michigan. You've no doubt read the grisly details involving the discovery of their bodies. The following information is considered highly classified and vital to that investigation. I trust your department will handle it accordingly. 1. All four bodies reported as mutilated were, in fact, savaged. In addition to suffering various states of dismemberment, the cadavers bore signs indicative of cannibalism. 2. In the elevated ore pocket, where the first two victims were found, a series of handprints matching one Professor Andrew Dalton, former resident of Glasgow and occasional visiting luminary from the University of Edinburgh, were found. 3. A journal was also discovered in the ore pocket. Lord knows why these young thrill-seekers scaled a 90-year-old ore dock to reach this contraption. Anyone falling into the upside-down bell would be utterly trapped. I have included the document in this envelope. Perhaps you can match the handwriting to Professor Dalton. I understand the professor has been a missing person for a decade or so. I need to know if this journal belongs to him. Any assistance or insight Police Scotland can offer is appreciated. Frankly, the journal strikes me as hokum, and I doubt this professor is alive, much less responsible for the gruesome demise of four healthy young men. I've added a few footnotes of my own to the document. The rest of the citations are the work of its deranged author. Grateful for any help. J. Slyfield Dalton's Guide to Eating One's Enemies Associate Professor A. Dalton, School of Anthropology, University of Edinburgh. 
submitted for partial fulfilment of yearly publishing obligations. Draft. Temperature. One defining characteristic of any dish is the temperature at which it is served, the comfort of warm food, the delightful chill of a prepared beverage, these small touches are as important as any spice or seasoning. A popular adage advises that revenge is a dish best served cold. Like most folk wisdom, this works better as a guideline than a rule. When dining upon the fruits of revenge, only the wine should be chilled. The meal itself should be pleasantly warm, a solid 37 degrees C, 98.6 degrees F, when possible. Cold revenge loses flavour, and in some cases ceases to be revenge at all. Pedants might object, say the old sore about cold revenge refers to exercising patience, allowing sufficient time to pass before taking vengeance. Bad advice. Fixating upon unfulfilled retribution often leaves one in a position where revenge is eating them. As this is not a guide about being eaten, we will explore the topic no further. Indulge me in a brief digression by way of example. I was once upon a stricken vessel in the Firth of Clyde. The boat was literally sinking beneath the waves while I partook of one of my earliest revenge meals. I recall little of the feast itself amidst all the turmoil, seawater roaring through the cabin with all the liveliness of football hooligans, difficulty keeping the food stationary as the vessel tossed to and fro, and the disapproving stare of my late wife, Lorna. Yes, that was the last time I saw my beloved spouse. Still, I recall a distinct similarity between the briny flavour of ocean water and the tang of the red juices saturating the meat. The mingling of the two struck my palate with a refreshing jolt, unlike anything I've eaten since. The temperature of the meal, perfect. Suffice it to say, a colder revenge would never have made such an impression upon me under the same circumstances. Meal Selection The first step in creating a fabulous meal lay in procuring the finest ingredients. Locating quality ingredients often requires an extensive search. In 1993, the Heidelberg excavation presented me with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, travel to the Amazon. I knew a strong performance at the Heidelberg site would all but solidify my path from struggling grad student to professorship. The invitation was a surprise, my graduate research being centred on the seemingly unrelated topic of Kuru, that rare spongiform encephalopathy chronicled among the four tribe by Alpers and Lindenbaum. Footnote 1. Seridwan Spark, Michael Alpers, FRS, Kuru and Papua New Guinea, the combined allure of problem, people and place. Health and History, 14 2012 26-45, Webb. Footnote 2. Lindenbaum, Shirley, Kuru Sorcery, Disease and Danger in the New Guinea Highlands, 2013, Print. The four people practice funerary cannibalism, during which children and the elderly are fed small portions of brain from the deceased. Should this material be infected by Kuru, they will fall ill in a manner similar to those who consume beef tainted by mad cow disease. The incubation period of the disease, an insidious 14 years, often passes before an infective tribesman displays the telltale signs of the disease, slurred speech, stumbling and tremors, or curia, as the four would say. Footnote 3. Kuru, article by Paul A. Janssen, E-Medicine, 2009-04-13, electronically received, 2010-02-01. Footnote 4. Note, when eating one's enemies, it is prudent to avoid consuming the brain. This advice is especially true for inhabitants of Papua New Guinea, or those with enemies among the Four tribe. Dalton. How my expertise in tribal customs and transmissible brain disease would benefit Professor Heidelberg was unclear. 
What could I possibly offer a man who was excavating the ancient ruins of an unknown people deep in the Amazon basin? Dr. Heidelberg answered this question by leading me to a structure dubbed the Circular Sanctum, a half-buried dome recently uncovered by his team. The blinding glare of halogen work lamps bathed the interior of the musty vault with a brilliant white. Inside, teams of student labourers sifted dirt, brushed bone artefacts and catalogued relics. Yet the most impressive discovery lay engraved upon the circular wall of the antediluvian chamber. A narrow spider script, accented by crescents and wedges, adorned the entire circumference of the chamber. This writing was interwoven with petroglyphs of spear-wielding natives pursuing what I assumed to be wild game. Tracing the progress of the Neolithic hunting scene proved most unsettling. While men with spears were depicted in abundance, no animals were ever shown. The final carving featured several families seated at a great table, while the dismembered portions of a fallen man are consumed. Great Scott, these unknown tribesmen were cannibals. Eager to prove my worth as an academic, I immediately asked to be introduced to the translator of the ancient script, one Lorna Montgomery. I do not exaggerate when I say her beauty was more breathtaking than the mysterious customs of the unknown Amazonians. Thus began my academic apprenticeship in the Amazon, also my courting of Lorna, language specialist and green-eyed angel from the University of Strathclyde a woman I would rescue from those cursed ruins only to lose her to the sea. Seasonal Dining Nothing announces the arrival of winter like the sweet scent of rosemary and cinnamon. Traditional winter festivals demand baked goods infused with nutmeg and ginger paired with peppermint drinks. Enemies are no exception to holiday traditions. Gluvine, or hot mulled spice wine, is a tasty beverage perfect for long winter nights. Footnote 5 Lee, Michael, Mulling Over Gluvine, Vienna Review, December 2012, Print I was first introduced to the drink at the home of my former colleague, Donovan Castleborn, may he rot in hell. Lorna and I accepted the invitation to celebrate winter festivals at his estate, some years after the disaster in the Amazon. In fact, it was Donovan's eagerness to discuss another prospective archaeological dig site that had piqued our interest. I suppose we all felt that enough time had passed since we'd have fallen off the horse, so to speak. Ever the dapper gent, Donovan met us at the door wearing a crisp black suit adorned with poinsettia cufflinks. Deirdre, his raven-haired wife, stood at his elbow. She flashed a broad smile while her animated hands danced with the cadence of a welcoming banter. Our hosts had clearly been indulging in spirits before our arrival, which was understandable given our common history. Those who had survived the Heidelberg excavation were well acquainted with the medicinal abuse of alcohol. I should state for the record that it was Donovan who accompanied Dr. Heidelberg when he first cracked open the hidden catacombs at the Amazonian excavation site. He was mere metres away when Heidelberg fell to the leaping shadows inhabiting the ancient structure. Remarkably, Donovan survived long enough for the Brazilian military to arrive, incinerate the excavation grounds and take us into custody. Thus, a drink or five before noon was an understandable regimen for we who had witnessed so much. Yet all this has little to do with the subject of holiday fare. 6. Speaking of holiday fare fruitcake. This guy is nutty as one. He's just getting warmed up with this leaping shadows bit. The ambassador from Brazil is on record stating that the site caught fire due to the use of substandard electrical generators. Jay Slyfield. The evening passed pleasantly enough. We sipped from elegant crystal glasses as the Castleborns walked us through high-ceilinged corridors strewn with tinsel, wreaths, and mistletoe. Dinner arrived on a silver platter and was placed upon a vast mahogany table. A roaring fireplace provided the room gentle light and adequate warmth. An ample supply of gluvine softened the dark December eve and elevated the spirits of all. Deirdre seemed especially exuberant, mischievously turning her attentions upon me as the evening wore on. Her friendly gestures soon became awkward. 
The innocent bumping of feet segued into shoes coming off, and soon I could feel her toes delicately raking against my ankle. I moved my feet, and said nothing, of course. If Donovan had another expedition lined up, I could not endanger an invitation over his wife's drunken flirtations. Lorna and I sorely needed the money, and my love for her was unassailable. To my great relief, Donovan soon cleared the table and produced a leather satchel bursting with newspaper clippings, photographs, and maps. I took this opportunity to move away from Deirdre and stand over Donovan's shoulder while he laid out the trove of documents. He pointed to one particular black-and-white picture showing a nondescript slab of stone standing two metres high. Inscribed upon the rock, the very same spider-script and crescent petroglyphs we had seen in the Amazon. These were taken from an abandoned excavation on the Isle of Arran. This particular photograph depicts the markings found upon a stone circle which sunk beneath the surface ages ago. There's more. I commissioned a small team to run the sonar on the nearby acreage. They found a hollow hill nearby, something akin to a passage tomb, like Newgrange. The presence of the glyphs was an implicit invitation to join Donovan's team. The strange script bound our lives together in ways I cannot explain. Everyone who survived the experience in the Amazon was a sojourner traversing the same dark trajectory. We bore similar scars, not merely the damage left by the Brazilian military during interrogation, but psychic scars. We had seen impossible things at the Heidelberg site, translated fragments of ancient wisdom which hinted at profound truths. Yet what has all this to do with seasonal food? Ah, yes, a few years later I would return to the Donovan estate to finish my business with Deirdre. For her sins I dragged her into the wine cellar and spent the evening submerging her face in different casks until her struggling form fell limp. Before she collapsed I took pains to remind her how she once yearned to feel my mouth upon her body. I sealed her in a barrel of vinegar until her flesh was like wet bread and her bones al dente. Then I granted her wish. 7. Information regarding the current state of the Castleborn couple is requested. We were unable to find them. J. Slyfield. Comfort food. Comfort food is that which perfectly blends a pleasing taste with a welcome sense of nostalgia. Lorna created a name for the ancient spider script. Ghoulverse. The style bore a remote resemblance to Arabic, though no real connections exist between the two. The few fragments she translated focused on the hunting, killing and consuming of humans. Other bits made strange claims regarding the tribe's dominion over life and death. These claims could easily be dismissed as cultural bravado, had Dr. Heidelberg not met his end at the hands of something trapped for five millennia within a sealed tomb. This is why the Brazilian soldiers bathed the site in napalm, why the eight of us who survived the incineration of the site were sworn to secrecy. Our rescue proved to be a mixed blessing. We were taken into custody and questioned extensively. The government promised that the rest of our lives would unfold within the squalid confines of their prisons, unless we signed sworn statements blaming the blaze on faulty generators. Two years and three suicides later... We were breathing free air, but our number had dwindled to five. Despair was not our only memento from the excavations. Lorna and I developed a fixation upon the secrets of the ghoulverse. We self-medicated, supported each other, and scoured every academic archive in search of material related to the mysterious Amazonian people. We were as people afflicted with addictive OCD, finding relief only when studying materials which connected us to that ancient site. Footnote 8 Mancibo, M.C. Grant, J.E. Pinto, A. Eisen, J.L. Rasmussen, S.A. Substance Use Disorders in an Obsessive-Compulsive Disorder Clinical Sample Journal of Anxiety Disorders, Web, 2009 this dreadful process sustained Lorna and me through the thick and thin of our marriage. We remained indivisible in spite of alcoholism, depression, mania, and all other manner of malevolent dibuk. Our plans to rejoin Donovan at the beginning of summer were delayed. 
a letter bearing the Castleborn family crest, arrived postponing the departure date. Something about the site being surveyed by land assessors. A small inconvenience, as Lorna and I were staying in the charming seaside town of Ayr. We spent those extra days translating as much of the ghoul verse as possible, often retranslating the same fragments for practice when no new material could be found. Allow me one small digression to explain why I returned to our rustic bed and breakfast a year later and consumed the proprietor and his wife. I do not recall their names, but the mental image of that hoary old man leering at Lorna every time she passed the front desk remains vivid. I had become accustomed to such behaviour over time. Spouses of attractive women learn to develop a certain emotional tone deafness to the attention their mates command. Lorna was indeed beautiful, becoming only more so as she matured into middle age. I too had matured, matured past pummeling every ill-mannered lout who stared at her. The weekend arrived when I was scheduled to depart with Donovan to the aisle, when Lorna suddenly insisted that she be brought along. This was a change from the original plan whereby the site would first be cleared of dangers by the men of the party. Call it misogyny if you like. To me the gesture was chivalrous, if not practical. I was opposed to her idea, of course. Donovan had booked passage for only a handful of us, requesting that the remaining members stay ashore to receive whatever we recovered from the site. Truly, I hoped to keep her on the Scottish mainland, for her own safety recalling all too well the harrowing massacre in Brazil. Yet she was adamant that she be allowed to accompany us to the isle. I can't stand one more day of that old lech gawking at me. His wife has been staring daggers at me for two weeks as if I'm asking for that old fool's attention. I'm coming to the Isle of Arran with you, and that's final. Donovan seemed as displeased as I over her decision, but neither of us could dissuade her. Thus her death was directly influenced by the proprietors of the bed and breakfast. This is why I abducted them with a stolen RV. 9. A list of crimes that should leave an impressive trail of evidence. Please forward any you have to me. J. Slyfield Once safely beyond the sight of civilization, I assured the mewling couple that my only intention was to indulge their bellies in the same feast of which their eyes had partaken. Their rapacious appetites for taking in the body of my wife were somewhat quelled when they learnt that, this time, they would be feasting upon each other. By the time the carving process was underway, the couple seemed to have lost their appetites entirely. Footnote 10 Note, the mark of an amateur chef is easily seen in raggedly cut meat, which varies in thickness. A true master of the art should be able to cut paper-thin slices from raw stock. Often this is achieved by placing the meat into a freezer for 15 to 20 minutes, a process which makes the meat firm and manageable. In absence of a freezer... One must rely on a steady hand, and in some cases, proper restraints. Dalton Proper Place Setting Modern table setting draws its origins from the medieval period. During this time, a single container of valued spice, the salt cellar, dictated seating by its placement on the table. The seat above the salt cellar represented a place of honour, all other guests taking their positions relative to the honourable position. Later centuries would introduce the spoon, the fork and more evolved flatware. Place setting also serves the much needed purpose of having all of one's tools nearby and easily utilisable. What shall I say about the Isle of Arran, or Little Scotland, as the locals refer to it? It is as one would expect, cold, grey, rain-sodden, dreary a climate matching the demeanour of Donovan's team. Strangers to me, our crew consisted of four young gentlemen of either Spanish or Mediterranean origin, silent lads whose shifty eyes did little to put my mind at ease. I mentioned my discomfort to Donovan, who assured me they were merely a hired security detail, and that the rest of the old team would be assembled once we cleared the site. For her part... Lorna agreed to stay aboard the boat until we breached and secured the ancient tomb. So began the strangest dig of my career. An illegal excavation where we packed knives and Molotov cocktails instead of buckets, brushes and sieves. 
The lights aboard our boat were extinguished once we anchored near the North Sanex burn. I kissed Lorna goodbye, my mind ruminating upon the absurdity of sneaking through the night with enough contraband to earn a hefty prison term, a thought which would reoccur to me several times as our shady crew followed Donovan through the barren hills and toward the site. Had Donovan not been leading us, we would have passed the location entirely. The ruins lay in a pit dug some three metres below the surface, completely invisible from the ground level. Time had buried the stone monuments of this secretive race, as surely as it had carried their names from memory. A winding slope along the outer edge of the pit granted access to the ancient standing stones. Some fifteen metres beyond them lay the crude entry of the hill tomb. One of the olive-skinned lads stayed at the edge of the pit, our sentry against unwanted interruptions. The rest of us followed Donovan to the ancient portal set within the hillside, the stone face could easily have been mistaken for a slab of exposed bedrock, if not for a thin gap tracing a rough rectangular shape upon it. My pulse raced as I stood before the entry. What horrors lay beyond this strange door sealed since the Neolithic? What wonders? Pry bars, Donovan said. The lads unshouldered their packs and withdrew their tools. I was aghast to see a pistol handle tucked into the pants of one man while another removed a shortened double-barrel shotgun from his satchel. When Donovan removed two hand grenades from his own pack, I was rendered speechless with astonishment. He must have taken note of my stricken expression. Remember the Amazon. Have your Molotovs at the ready. There will be no soldiers to save us this time, he said. Grasping my Zippo lighter in one hand and a firebomb in the other... I watched the young men heave their weight against the pry bars. The stone door teetered forward and struck the earth with enough force to set my spine a-tremble. Moments later, a man armed with a brilliant LED light ducked into the dark chamber. I followed close behind, never realising this final scene had been set as meticulously as the tables of a five-star restaurant. Bake time. Meat with bones. The secret to cooking meat so tender it is falling off the bone? 40 pounds of meat at 255 degrees, baked slowly over a period of 10 hours. Or should you feel adventurous, experiment on your own. In the centre of the chamber stood the crumbling remnants of an ancient well or cistern. From this circle of mud and stone a rushing noise reverberated through the circular chamber, crashing surf distorted through distance and depth. Flashlights hit upon elaborate sections of gulverse etched along the interior walls of the chamber. Mercifully, the rest of the crypt appeared vacant. I approached the stone well to determine if subterranean passages, in fact, linked it with the sea. Donovan followed, bringing one of the security men as well. Before reaching the edge of the cistern, I noticed a swath of clean floor that marked an irregular trail through the ancient dust. I lit the wick of the Molotov cocktail and pointed toward the ground. Drag marks. Something in here has moved, recently. I see. Check the interior of that cistern, then, carefully. Don't hesitate to burn anything that may be down there, Donovan replied. At the well's edge, I carefully leaned over the thigh-high wall, flaming cocktail serving to illuminate the interior. The rushing noise definitely came from below yet I detected no scent of brine, no salty tang of seawater. I was preparing to extinguish the Molotov cocktail when an incredible force hit the back of my legs. I dropped the firebomb down the roaring hole and screamed out in pain. A second lash from a metal rod blazed across the back of my knees and sent me to the ground. Someone kicked me, striking at my head, but these blows were vague impacts compared to the agony burning through my broken legs. When my senses returned, I saw one of the Mediterranean men. He stood towering over me, waving a metal pry bar like a cricket bat. Donovan rifled through my jacket pockets, then stepped away. The dim glow illuminating his face revealed that he had nicked my cell phone. Ah, here we go, he says. My heart sank as Donovan leaned down, holding my phone out. Upon the screen, Deirdre Castleborn posed provocatively upon a sofa in all her naked glory. Several salacious texts followed, though I had replied to none of them. Donovan swiped through the half-dozen pictures and messages I had saved before blocking her number permanently. 
I searched for words to explain that I had neither invited nor responded to her overtures, but the pain left me unable to form a coherent sentence. You thought I wouldn't answer this affront, this brazen attack, upon not only my marriage but my family honour. I demand satisfaction, Donovan said. What a fool I was, the drag marks left upon the earthen floor, the way the portal stone easily fell away from the entryway. This chamber was cleared of all artefacts long before I arrived. Our outing was never an unauthorised excavation, but an exercise in revenge. I'll be sure to return your phone to Lorna. This will help her take your loss in stride. Someone has to translate the artefacts we already recovered from here. The work should help her get through whatever short grieving period you warrant. Finish it, Sergio. I raised my hands as if they might ward away the inevitable. The gesture was cut short by the bark of a pistol. The next moments were an intense mixture of agony and shock. I have vague recollections of being hoisted in the air and hurled into a flaming pit. The stone walls bludgeoned my flailing body during that freefall descent. I prayed the final blow would be swift. It was swift and cold. Seafood Bone fragments from northern Kenya indicate our ancestors first dined on fish roughly two million years ago. Footnote 11 David R. Brown, John W. K. Harris, Naomi E. Levin, Jack T. McCoy, Andy I. R. Herries, Marion K. Bamford, Laura C. Bishop, Brian G. Richmond, and Zalendo Kibunjia. Early hominin diet included diverse terrestrial and aquatic animals, 1.95 MA, in East Turkana, Kenya, PNAS 2010-107-22-10002-10007, published ahead of print, June 1st, 2010, DOI 10.1073-PNAS.com. One zero zero two one eight one one zero seven. Some academics attribute this dietary experiment to a dramatic increase in the size of human brains. A dash of lemon or Parmigiano Reggiano can add a pleasing complexity to the flavour of most fish, and perhaps by correlation, most brains. There are no words to describe those initial moments following my transformation. When I resurfaced from the pit, my broken bones were mended. My bullet-pierced organs lay dead within my body, no longer responsible for my vitality. I did not know that, of course. Not then. I knew only hunger, instinct, and madness. When I exited the tomb, I could see the glow of two distant bodies travelling eastward. They blazed like candles in the darkness, growing ever brighter as I closed upon them. My next memories were of screams, violence, and the bitterness of blood circulating through my mouth like an electric current. I ended the lives of the security men quickly and choked down the greasy gobbets of their flesh. 12. The Sunday Herald reported three victims of wild dog attacks on the Isle of Arran around this time. I assume there's no correlation, correct? J. Slyfield the primal madness began to subside, not wholly, but enough for my overstimulated senses to surrender some control to my consciousness. Using this brief reprieve of lucidity to my advantage, I followed familiar landmarks toward the ocean. Dispatching the guard left ashore to protect Donovan's boat proved simple. I had, after all, seen his position when we first disembarked. My intention was to make for the boat after snapping his neck. Yet my overwhelming hunger forced me to pause and partake of his steaming corpse. I simply lacked the discipline to resist. As before, each mouthful brought a small recession of the madness, another step toward rationality. There were other effects, invigoration, heightened strength, increased alacrity. Mentioning these details on paper does little justice to the actual feeling that accompanied the feast. In the midst of this rapture, I completely forgot about the mercenary posted on the rear deck of the boat. The brave soul announced himself by firing his rifle. It is only by chance that the top of my head was not completely removed. The whine of the passing bullet sent adrenaline surging through my system. I hurled myself across the beach and toward the watercraft. 
Another shot struck the ground a mere half-metre to the left of me. Plunging into the water, I ploughed my way through the frigid barrier with murderous strokes. When my clawed hands pierced the side of the cabin cruiser, I scaled it like a spider. The sound of footfalls rapidly retreating across the deck indicated that my adversary was fleeing. Much of what follows is jumbled. It is drawn from the primal impressions which linger in those spaces where my memory has failed. Wood splintering beneath my grasp, pursuing my terrified quarry below deck. The electrifying odour of panic. A deafening blast of a gun in close quarters, a floor slick with human remains. The faint orange hue rising from offal I've pulled from someone's abdomen. The visceral intensity of those moments allowed Donovan to quietly enter the area unnoticed through an adjoining doorway. Remarkable, he said. Then he fired two shots from a pistol into my chest. The wound would have been mortal to any other man. For me, it was merely agonizing. The impact dropped me like a stringless marionette. I felt an incredible burning in my core where animated flesh and sinew began to stitch over the fresh wounds. A rapacious hunger built within me, overshadowing the pain. I fought to remain still, to play possum in spite of the overpowering instinct to feed. I gauged Donovan's approach by the acrid odour of the burnt gunpowder. His pistol was raised, no doubt with plans to deliver a final volley of bullets. Donovan is not the sort to gamble with a man he has already executed once. A break in his footsteps, a sure indication he was positioning himself for the kill shot. In this brief pause I launched myself fully upon him, easily knocking the gun aside before it could be fired. Killing him instantly would be easy, but not satisfying. With my left hand pinning his neck to the floorboards, I wrenched his pistol arm against the joint and gnawed upon his shoulder. He bucked like a mechanical bull all the while. His resistance hit a crescendo when the arm popped loose of the socket. I looked for a stove, knowing Donovan would lose blood quickly once the limb fully detached. I intended to cauterize his stump on a burner to keep him lively, if I could resist the impulse to devour him, of course. At any moment I could space out, only to reawaken amid the carnage of deeds I no longer remembered. This was when Donovan cast his free hand outward. I heard a metal object strike the far wall, followed by the sound of a heavy marble traversing a wooden floor. My nemesis fixed his bloodshot eyes on me and growled a final curse. Right then, I'll take you to hell myself. The mysterious object proved to be a grenade, of course. I lifted Donovan's sagging torso to absorb as much of the shrapnel as possible. He proved slightly less worthless as a shield than he was as a human being. The blast was immersive. It bathed my nerves in lava and caused my ears to pulse with silence. Hunger took control. Although pools of brine were gathering around my ankles, I was too busy ripping into the shredded form of Donovan to care. At some point, a geezer emerged from the ragged hole at the base of the far wall and showered the cabin with a frigid rain. I was dimly aware of the water level reaching my calves, yet the agony was too great for me to stop feasting. It was only when the entire ship sharply listed to one side that I pulled my teeth from Donovan's remains. She was standing in awe, clutching the doorway with her alabaster hands and watching me her stricken face contorted like the Greek mask of tragedy. Lorna. The ship lurched again. A hail of loose objects skittered for the far wall. Lorna braced herself in the door jam, the steep decline of the boat forcing her to hold tight or plunge downward. How I yearned to go to her, to rush toward that doorway and take her in my arms. Yet the hunger was fiercely upon me. I could not trust myself not to consume her. Likewise, I could not bear her witnessing that which had already consumed me. I buried my face in the corpse of Donovan and dragged him into a stand-up closet. Those were her last memories of me, a maiden regarding a monster who was once her lover, a vision of horror, a thunderous crash and a gulf of black ice separating the two of us forever. Dessert. Just desserts. To trace the origins of dessert, one need only observe the migration of sugar. Sugar is the foundation of all reputable desserts. It is a beautiful testament to human nature that we universally desire to end every meal with a bit of sweetness. 
There is a tipping point between acting with purpose and performing out of habit. Mine should have been obvious at the outset. Inevitably, the years of my existence exceeded the number of my enemies. The day dawned where maintaining my life required taking the lives of innocence. Not unlike the downward spiral of a chemical dependency, my options were between persistent agony or indulging my growing addiction. Maintaining humanity is impossible when mere survival requires being inhumane. Even so, the remnants of my humanity remain my most treasured possession. At times, I am blessed by fragments of memory, the sound of Lorna's laughter, the gentleness of her touch, the way her curves fit perfectly against me when we embraced. Yet these moments come less frequently. Furthermore, there are other memories, tainted remembrances, foreign recollections, strange images and feelings which never truly belonged to me, an unexpected side effect of my diet, no doubt. Whatever sins others have committed against me, there remains no question that I am partially to blame at every turn. It was I who pursued the mystery of the ancient cannibals to the exclusion of all else, I who allowed Donovan's strumpet of a wife to foist her attentions upon me, I who kept her pictures, I who failed to shelter Lorna from the unwanted attentions of the miserly couple running the bed and breakfast, I who ultimately abandoned her to the sea. As I began this work with one adage, perhaps it is fitting that I close with another. You are your own worst enemy. With this truth in mind, I now retreat to seclusion. This final missive of mine has strayed far from its intended purpose. It shall accompany me to my tomb, to a forgotten place with steel walls, a place set above the earth, that I might not languish for eons below it. Farewell. Andrew Dalton Final note. There it is in all its rambling glory. I hate to waste your time with this, but my people are insistent that I get the official opinion from Police Scotland on whether or not any of these events can be confirmed. Whatever the case, we've got one sick puppy on this side of the water, so any information you can offer is appreciated. I have four grieving families looking for answers. I sure as hell can't comfort them with anything you've read here. I owe you one. Inspector J. Slyfield That was D. Morgan Balmer's Dalton's Guide to Eating One's Enemies, as read by Paul S. Jenkins and Jonathan Sharp. I have to laugh. In college, in the morning, I had a butchery class, and then in the afternoon, I had an anatomy class. It's its own kind of little horror to realize the course books are pretty much the same. Paul S. Jenkins is one of the three Pauls who host the fortnightly skeptical podcast, Skeptical. Paul writes the skeptical blog, Notes from an Evil Bernie, and his science fiction podcast novel, The Platone Revisionist, is available for free from Podio Books. And our second narrator, Jonathan Sharp, is a regular narrator for the District of Wonders Network and is a producer for Audible through the ACX platform. By day, he slings cheese and wine at a local grocer, and by night, he loses at board games to his infinitely more talented wife, Paige. Recently, in an attempt to hide from the sun, they have transplanted themselves in the Pacific Northwest and are soaking up the rain using their new puppy-slash-mud sponge fin. You can find links and information about Jonathan at his website, www.sharpandvoice.com. Links to all of these will be in the show notes. Just before our sign-off, could I ask you to go into your memories for me? Mr. Jim Goodluck has asked the staff a question, and I haven't been able to give him an answer. He recalls a story that we shared and wants to know which story it was. He described it, and it circles my memory, too. Like something right on the tip of the tongue, he recalls a story of a big city fellow that drifts into a hick town and picks up a dancer at a dive bar— with the intent, of course, on murdering her. But lo and behold, she turns a table on him and murders him to make leather stripper gear out of his skin. Despite the promise of technology, turning to a full-text search of words like bikini or dancer turns up a surprisingly large number of stories from the back catalog, 
and none of them quite fit the bill. In the back catalog, we don't bother to organize real well, so it's possibly it's been omitted from searchable text altogether. So if this rings any bells, tales to terrify at gmail.com. This has been a splinter in my mind for a while now. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales of Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. And thank you for a good 300 episodes. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.